it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It's Wednesday, March 9th, 2022. Welcome to the Guy Benson Show. I'm your host, Guy Benson. Glad to have you all here. 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern every weekday and around the clock for free on our podcast. All the information related to the show and the podcast is right at GuyBensonShow.com. On today's program, Dr. Nicole Sapphire will be here later this hour. The latest on COVID, some controversial recommendations, a study that we talked about yesterday. We'll get to all of that with Dr. Sapphire. In our final hour, General Jack Keane will be here on the very latest in Ukraine. Rumors about Russian troop movements and potential tactics. We will get the latest from him. And Jason Rance, our buddy from KTTH, a Fox regular, he's got a woke tale story out of the Pacific Northwest that we will bring to you. Plus, in the middle of the program today, in our middle hour, we will go to the phones and talk to you about a very interesting new poll that poses a hypothetical question to the American people. We will explain in the 4 o'clock Eastern hour, but you can write down our toll-free number right now, 833-456-1300. 833-456-1300. Stand by for that. As we get going on today's program, let's begin with a Fox News alert and the stats on COVID. 79.2 million cases Confirmed that's the documented case total since the beginning of the pandemic cumulatively in the United States. It is a vast underestimation. The death toll, people dying with or of COVID in this country over the same time period, now 960,687. It is a big day on Wall Street, a market rally with the Dow currently up 737 points to 33,000. 369 after a few days on the schneid. Right now, it is very much in the green, and we will see how things go over the next 51 minutes or so. But stocks doing well today overall. As I mentioned, we will get to Ukraine. We will get to COVID. We will get to some of the biggest stories in the country and the world in due time today, and we will give them plenty of coverage, as we always do. What I wanted to open with, however— is another story. It's a domestic controversy over legislation that has now passed both chambers of the legislature in the state of Florida. It is called the Parental Rights in Education Act. If you want to look it up and see the bill for yourself, it is House Bill 1557. It is known and being referred to in much of the media, and if you try to find it anywhere in media, You probably have to Google what they're calling the don't say gay bill down in the Sunshine State, which Governor DeSantis is apparently preparing to sign. Now, I have been contacted by a lot of people in recent weeks and especially in the last few days 
asking for my opinion on this because I am in the position of being a center-right conservative, as regular listeners know on this program, who also happens to be gay, which many of you know, but some of you may not know. I don't talk about it constantly here, but it's part of who I am. So what do I think of the bill that they're calling Don't Say Gay? Well, here's how I started my personal evaluation of the legislation. And I know this is going to seem strange, maybe even groundbreaking. I read it. It's only seven pages. The whole thing is seven pages long. It takes about five to ten minutes to read if you want to reread certain portions or whatever. It's not a lengthy document like these spending bills, a thousand pages. That's not the case here. So I went and actually read it. There's also the issue of previous versions of this bill that have floated around, different amendments that were adopted or not. There are different iterations of this bill that are out there, and some news outlets are still reporting on old versions of the bill as if they made it into, and all the provisions made it into, the finalized bill that is now passed awaiting the potential and likely signature of Governor DeSantis in Florida. That is shoddy. That is inaccurate. So just to forewarn you, I am likely to please very few of you with the upcoming analysis. I know a lot of people who are progressives and LGBT activists believe that I should be in full throat denouncing this whole thing, hair on fire, the whole nine yards. Then there are conservatives and fans of DeSantis and others who believe that I should be rushing to the ramparts to defend the bill and say that everything you've heard about it is a total lie and it's actually totally great and it's just defending parents' rights. And the reality is, having read it for myself, having spoken to a few folks, including lawyers, about it, my views do not neatly fit into one of those two categories. And so... I'm not going to necessarily affirm what you listening right now want me to say about this controversial legislation, because that's not my job. My job, as I see it, is to bring you news, opinion and analysis as best as I can glean from the facts based on what I believe. And then let the chips fall. And sometimes you will fully approve, sometimes you will fully disapprove, and sometimes it'll fall somewhere in between, and I'm comfortable with that. I hope you are, too. It's what we try to do here. And this is actually a fairly complex situation. It's not just black and white. Evil bill. Great bill. That's what we hear. People who support the bill are a bunch of bigots who hate gay people and want to unperson them and erase their humanity. And then we also hear, well, supporters of this bill really are just wanting to groom children for sexual exploitation or to become members of the LGBT community or what have you. And I don't think that that's really a helpful way to begin a conversation that's meaningful or constructive at all. So as I said, I began by reading it. I don't think that it is good or fair journalism For the press to do what they've done in almost all cases, adopting the language, the nickname of the bill that progressive activists have created. Don't say gay. Right. Almost every headline, every lead includes that. 
It's not the name of the bill. It's how critics are framing the bill. And look, if that happened both ways, that'd be one thing. But we mentioned the other week on the show, Senate Democrats were voting on this really radical abortion legislation here in Washington. And if Republicans had said, well, we're against the Kill the Infants Act, do you think the media like CNN and ABC and The Washington Post, would their headlines and their coverage and their chirons say, Senate now voting on controversial Kill Infants bill? I don't think that's how it would go. So already they're putting their finger on the scale here. As I mentioned, even some critics of the final version are admitting that it is not as concerning as previous versions, but some outlets are still insisting on using outdated elements from previous versions or amendments that were considered or debated and pretending as if those things, and maybe they're just lazy, they don't know, but they are reporting as if those things were in the final bill, which they're not. That's not a great look journalistically. Now, the one part of the bill that's getting the most attention back and forth is actually something that I don't think should be that controversial. So I'm flipping now to page four of seven, and it's the third item in this legislation. And some people are getting confused reading sort of the summary intro of the bill. What matters is the legislative text. So I'm reading from the text itself, and this is, quote, Classroom instruction by school personnel or third parties on sexual orientation or gender identity may not occur in kindergarten through uh, grade three. May not occur in kindergarten through grade three. Instruction in classrooms on sexual orientation or gender identity may not occur in kindergarten or grade three in that range. So five, six, seven, eight-year-olds are not to be instructed on sexual orientation or gender identity matters in the classroom in Florida. That's what the bill says on this particular point. Or, the sentence goes on, in a manner that is not age-appropriate or developmentally appropriate for students in accordance with state standards. So let me just say straight up, I do not have a problem. I find it unobjectionable to say schools should not be teaching kindergartners, first graders, second graders, third graders about sexual orientation or gender identity. I don't think that is an appropriate realm of instruction for kids that age. And I know that some people are arguing on that point and saying, actually, no, it should be allowed in certain ways. I just think that's not really the area on this legislation that gives me pause. And if I had to guess, seems like that would be probably a 70-30 or an 80-20 issue, especially among parents. Those are very young kids. Where I start to ask questions and have concerns is not on that. And by the way, there's other stuff in the bill about transparency for parents. Generally, I'm very in favor of schools and school districts being transparent with parents. What are they teaching kids? I think that that should be generally maximized. And making sure that parents have a say in various things. There are components to this bill on that front as well that I don't have a problem with. My concern is the after grade three question saying, well, it has to be age and developmentally appropriate if there's going to be instruction on these subjects. And that is, I think, clearly vague. 
critics might say vague by design. It's very subjective, quite, quite subjective. What's age appropriate? You'll have some parents thinking, well, my high school sophomore who's 15 or 16, I don't want them hearing about any of this stuff in classroom instruction. I'm going to sue. And the mechanism here is allowing parents to sue school districts. I worry that that could be abused based on subjectivity. What are the courts going to decide is age or developmentally appropriate? And it seems like this would be a huge windfall to trial lawyers just for an avalanche of lawsuits. And I'm not sure that that, given the subjectivity of that standard, not really defining it, I'm not sure that's a great element of this law. That gives me pause. Not K through 3, but when we get to high school, I mean, it's just this kind of hazy language. I like specificity because it cuts down on the possibility of abuse or misinterpretation or application in a way that's potentially problematic. The other thing that I'm concerned about in this Florida law that is not yet law, but very well could be soon, it's passed both houses of the legislature, is some of the verbiage around what school districts would have to do, school personnel notifying parents, quote, about his or her students' mental, emotional, or physical health or well-being and changes in those things. And if that changes the monitoring or the services for those students. And again, I don't know how this would be applied. I don't know what would necessarily constitute something that the school would need to disclose. There is a concern. And again, I'm underlining, I don't know how this would be applied. Again, that goes to the vagueness here, which concerns me. But there is concern among some that this could mean If, let's say, a student is struggling with his or her identity, sexual or gender identity, and they go to a trusted teacher or counselor at the school to confide in them in confidence, would the school be required to then effectively out that kid to their family, which is a very, very troubling thing to me. Coming out is a process that is not easy. It's complex. It's different for everyone. I think it, to the greatest extent possible, should be done on one's own terms. I didn't do it until my mid-20s, even with a very loving family at home. I mean, there is an exception here and a little caveat saying if there's a reasonable expectation that there would be abuse or neglect because of the disclosure, then that would be an exception. But that's a very high bar. And I think if there's a possibility that this could be used and would be tested for sure with lawsuits to require that kind of disclosure, hey, there's a change in your kid's mental and emotional well-being because they said this to one of us, I think that would discourage potentially important conversations and could chill some of those interactions that could be vitally important to some of these kids. So I'm almost up on the break here. To me, this is a mixed bag of a bill. It doesn't say don't say gay. It doesn't ban discussion of these issues in classrooms at all. It bans instruction K through three, which doesn't bother me at all. The vagueness beyond there is a question mark. Right. That is a a point of concern for me. And then this other disclosure requirement or disclosure structure is also a point of concern. And so I think it is a, a mixed bag. 
that could be subject to abuse and could be used in bad ways. I also think it is being unfairly demonized by some people, and we're having a very dysfunctional and stupid conversation about it. Unsurprisingly, I would say, in our current era. A few more points on this, which I'll get to right after this short break. As we get going today, it's The Guy Benson Show. Guy Benson will be right back. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at briankilmeadeshow.com. I'm Guy Benson, and those are students in Florida doing a walkout, chanting, We Say Gay. Those are not first graders, by the way, obviously. And I'm all for people expressing their views on things, but it would be good if people actually tried to educate themselves about what they are weighing in on before getting spun up in either direction. Florida Democrats in the Capitol were also chanting gay, as if, and some of the coverage might suggest, that they are banning the word gay in the state of Florida, or you can't say it in schools. This is not true. Right, if there are fair criticisms of the bill, and I've made a few of them here, then have at it. But some of this is really silly and not serious. I would like to see some of the language tightened up. I would like to see some of the terms in the so-called don't say gay bill defined much more clearly. I think we shouldn't call it that. The official name of the legislation, of course, is not that. It's Parental Rights and Education, HB 11 or 1557, rather, in Florida. So better definition of terms, some tightened up language to clarify some of the concerns that I have, preferably in the direction I would like to see them clarified. I also think that if you're a parent who doesn't want your second grader or your kindergartner instructed about sexual identity in the classroom, you aren't a bigot. And making that sort of like the thrust of the argument to attack people who support the bill, it's wrong. It's also a political loser. So you might say that analysis that I just gave is a cop-out. So be it if you believe that. I think it is a nuanced, good-faith analysis on my part trying to do it credibly and seriously. And I hope you respect that. Agree or disagree. Dr. Nicole Sapphire is coming up next. Stay tuned to The Guy Benson Show. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. GuyBensonShow.com. That's our website here at the program. Podcasts always free. I've actually had a few people, listeners, messaging me during the break saying, hey, some of that stuff you were just talking about, about the Florida bill and the LGBT controversy, is there somewhere that I can read all of that? And 
The answer is yes. You can follow me on Twitter at Guy P. Benson. I went on a long thread last night about a dozen tweets, including screenshots of the legislation, a link to the bill itself. So it's right there. Guy P. Benson on Twitter. One other point, by the way, because I wanted to get this in and we'll get to our guest here in just a moment. Governor DeSantis was asked about this bill yesterday by a reporter. It did not go terribly well for the reporter because it was framed, I would say, unfairly. And DeSantis let him have it. Cut 23. Governor, if you could, I want to ask you about the recommendation. What critics call the don't say gay bill is on the Senate floor. Does it say that in the bill? No, that you support. Does it say that in the bill? I'm asking you. I'm asking you to tell me what's in the bill because you are pushing false narratives. It doesn't matter what critics say. Hold on. It says it bans classroom instruction on sexual identity and gender orientation. For who? For, for for grades pre K through three. I know you. So five year olds, six year olds, seven year olds, and. Um, the idea that you wouldn't be honest about that and tell people what it actually says, it's why people don't trust people like you, because you peddle false narrative. If you're going to report and you're a journalist on a controversial bill like this, adopting one side's nickname, moniker for it, and their framing of it is not great. And as I said in the previous segments, you can go back and listen to the things that I do not object to at all in the bill and some of the things that I do and have problems with and I would like to see clarified before I would be comfortable supporting something like this bill. If that's the case, if you are, I think, looking at this hopefully with an open mind and honestly and trying to understand what's actually in it, this applies to journalists or just Ordinary citizens, average people. You won't just buy hook, line and sinker anything that anyone's telling you about something that they aren't necessarily getting into the substance on. And to those opponents who are against the bill broadly, I would just say fighting on the K through three provision and that piece of it is not going to end well. What DeSantis just did there, I think if people heard that messaging, they would be much more inclined to side with the bill. That's not the area that worries me at all, as I said. And having that battle with all this other sort of peripheral dishonesty and the suggestion that you can't say the word gay in Florida schools anymore, I mean, that's not really having a conversation that is tethered to what the legislation says. So if we're going to have a debate, let's have the debate. Let's do it rooted in reality, rooted in fact. And I think that there are fair points on both sides of the debate. We're just not seeing or hearing too many of them because of just the the chaotic noise, this noise machine that gets going on social issues in particular, where the media almost always weighs in on social issues on one side versus the other. And as someone who is pro-religious liberty, pro-parental rights, skeptical of government, openly and proudly gay, I have a different perspective, a unique perspective in some ways on this. And I've gotten a lot of little nasty grams in the last few days from people who think that I'm not doing the right thing for the tribe that they think I ought to be representing here. And when it comes to complex, nuanced issues like this, the tribe that I represent is myself as a free-thinking, independent, critical thinker. And I feel like that's what I owe you as an audience. 
not a handful of talking points and pithy chants to get you all emotional. Although it is an emotionally fraught issue for various reasons. I don't dispute that. Sometimes it's best when things are emotionally fraught to take a step back and a breath, a deep breath. And not a lot of that is happening in this current dispute. Okay, I will move on because I want to get to some other totally unrelated but important things with our next guest, one of our favorites, Dr. Nicole Sapphire, board-certified medical doctor, senior Fox News medical contributor, best-selling author of Panic Attack, playing politics with science in the fight against COVID-19. Doctor, it's great to have you back here. Hi, Guy. Thanks so much for having me on, and happy belated birthday. Oh, thank you very much. That means a lot. And I want to actually start in Florida, but not on the issue that I was just discussing, a different Florida-related controversy that's much more in your bailiwick. The state of Florida and the public health officials down in the Sunshine State have decided to recommend against the vaccination of healthy young children as a matter of course when it comes to COVID-19. I know you've written about this multiple times, including in the Wall Street Journal. This is now a state government more or less embracing your view of things. And you can correct me if, if I'm missing any nuance or details here. But there's been a massive backlash saying that this is anti-vax. This is dangerous for kids. What is Florida doing and what do you make of it? Well, Guy, you know, it's a great thing to be discussing right now because it is finally bringing to the forefront should healthy young children be receiving this vaccine. And this is the conversation that I've been trying to discuss for the last nine to 12 months. And while we don't actually know exactly what Florida is recommending for or against right now, you know, they kind of alluded to something, but the details haven't necessarily been released. But what it sounds like is is that they're recommending against vaccinating healthy young children. Now, I can tell you, I don't like absolutism when it comes to science and medicine. And when the CDC's recommendation for everyone needs to have two doses, three doses, four doses of the vaccine, I have a problem with that. I also do have a problem with people saying no one should get the vaccine. So there's a huge gray area. And for me, when we're looking at young kids and COVID, I mean, undoubtedly, you can no longer deny the fact that children are still less likely to get COVID-19. The the risk of them having a severe outcome of COVID-19 is negligible. And a huge portion of children, upward of anywhere from 60 to 70 percent, maybe more, have already been exposed to SARS-CoV-2, therefore have a form of natural immunity, which data has showed has strong protectiveness. Um, at this point, you have to look at, well, what is the benefit of the vaccine? And it, there is no data demonstrating that children, especially adolescent males, have a strong benefit from being vaccinated when they're healthy, and they've already recovered from SARS-CoV-2. While there is a risk, the myocarditis, pericarditis is well documented at this point. So it is not a strong push to vaccinate healthy kids, especially those who have already recovered from COVID-19. Meanwhile, I know you saw this study that came out of Spain. We talked about it on the show yesterday. I saw you tweeting about it. We quoted you at townhall.com today. I quoted you yesterday here as well. But I just want to go back and really highlight it because, yes, it's vindication for a position that you've been espousing on this show for quite some time and elsewhere. So have I. 
and uh, you've taken criticism, I've taken some criticism. I think over time, a lot of the conventional wisdom slowly, finally started to shift in the direction of the actual science, the actual data on the efficacy of mask mandates for children in schools. And the study in Spain was a really big one. And what did it show? Just to make sure, and the reason, by the way, that I like to and feel like we ought to harp on this and not just let it be a one-day story is there are still people with a lot of power in this country who might, months from now, if there's a new variant or a surge, a seasonal surge or something, there will be people, you can bet on it, urging the resumption of so-called mitigation strategies like this, urging the reimposition of mass mandates for kids in schools. And I think making sure that we are following the science and showing the data and shouting it from the rooftops is important in advance of what might be coming down the pike hypothetically. So that's sort of the preamble. What did the Spanish study show in accordance with a lot of other studies that you've been citing? So just as we've kind of dissected studies through in the United States and other parts of the country, you have to dissect the Spanish study as well. Overall, they concluded that having face mask mandates in schools did not equate to a significant decrease of transmission or really any benefit when it came to COVID-19 in young kids. What they did note was the higher risk of um, getting COVID-19 or higher risk of transmission was directly related to the age of the kids, meaning high school kids are more likely to get it, you know, with the mask mandate versus without the mask mandate. Now, but here's the thing, you have to look at this. So without the mask mandate, if you have a mask mandate, yes, all the kids are wearing a mask. That's an easy control. But in the group where there's without the mask mandate, it's it's a little bit more of a gray area because it wasn't that no kids had masks on. It just that was that there was not a mandate. Um, but we have already seen that. The Spanish study just adds to that. The, the mask mandates do not equate to an overall decreased risk of transmission. In fact, sitting in the classroom, studies all across the world have shown that masks or no masks, you don't have a change in transmission. Where you have that higher risk of transmission are in the break rooms with teachers and staff. Mm-hmm. When you have a one-on-one conversation with a, a a student and the teacher, or when kids are playing sports and in the locker rooms or on the buses. That's where the transmission is happening. And on top of that, the well, it's especially and that's within not- that's within a school context, right? Most of the transmission is happening not in a school context. It's much more likely out in the community writ large. Absolutely. But when they start saying, oh, we are seeing uh, increased transmission of school, you break that down even more. It's not really happening at school. The CDC's own study demonstrated, I mean, this was at the end of 2020. You have to remember, they showed that there was negligible, zero transmission between children. It was all teacher to teacher or teacher to child. It wasn't even amongst the kids. Yet here they are. They continue to mask the kids. They had plastic barriers around these children. I mean, and again, there is no data demonstrating benefit at that time. And now we actually have data demonstrating that that doesn't help at all. Yet some schools are still requiring it. Yep. And from that study, hundreds of thousands of kids in Spain Quote, face mask mandates in schools not associated with lower COVID incidence or transmission, suggesting this intervention is not effective, end quote. And then there's some of the other you know, specifics when you dig down deeper that you just mentioned. But that's the bottom line. And it falls in line with so many of the other things that we have seen and learned for so long. And there are still people 
struggling to reconcile the reality with what they think the science ought to be. And I see David Leonhardt, the New York Times, has written a piece today, Do COVID Precautions Work?, and sort of trying to burst the bubble a little bit about some of these things like, you know, hand sanitizing and mask wearing. Are these really that effective? And he's kind of nudging people saying, not really. And there are people getting very angry at him for saying something that, frankly, the data has been pointing to for a year. That's what's so strange about this, doctor. Uh, Guy, I mean, I, I rarely say this, but bravo to the Times for finally catching up on what we have been saying and harping on for so long now. The plastic barriers, they finally, everyone, we spent millions upon millions of dollars to put up plastic barriers everywhere, grocery stores, schools, you name it, it was there. And then they actually did a study on it, and it showed those plastic barriers decreased ventilation and increased the risk of transmission of COVID. It made it it's worse. Like, there goes tens of millions of dollars. And unfortunately, that is what has continued to happen. You put all these cloth masks on children. There have been no no demonstrable data showing that there's any benefit. However, we have seen that there have been decrease in reading amongst all of the children. There have been yes. uh, educational development issues. And that was another New York Times story, together. big New York Times story just yesterday on that that we read from, and, and that's the downside of it. And by the way, I just want to say, because we're having a rational conversation about vaccines for healthy young children. That does not mean that either one of us is anti-vax. We've both been extremely pro-vaccine for COVID on this show. You can We have the receipts. It's been the case for many months on this show. <laughs> we're proud of that. And also, you know, we're talking about the masking and all of that. It doesn't mean that COVID still isn't serious. I mean, with or of COVID, we're approaching a million deaths in the United States. There's also this study, once again from the New York Times, about at least some researchers are suggesting that COVID, people who are exposed to COVID, who suffer COVID, could have changes to their brain, maybe even, you know, senior citizens seeing their brains shrink. I mean, we still don't really know about the long-term effects of the disease itself. This is some concerning stuff, doctor. We have about a minute or two left. What can you tell us about this? I don't know if you've seen the study specifically or the story, but changes to the brain, that, that, that is a red flag for a lot of people. That's scary. Uh, definitely a red flag, but not not surprising, Guy. One of the things that you and I have talked about uh, on air and off air multiple times is that this virus has demonstrated what's called neurotropism, the ability to affect the central nervous system. When people joke around, oh, I lost my sense of smell, smell that's not insignificant. That means your central nervous system is affected. So this study quickly looked at people who had MRIs before a COVID diagnosis and those who had it after their COVID diagnosis, as well as the control group of those who didn't have a COVID diagnosis. And it demonstrated that there were more changes in the gray area on people who had a COVID diagnosis. And interestingly, it centered around the olfactory nerve, which is the nerve that is, that is um, responsible for our sense of smell. So there needs more research, but this is not surprising. And that has been one of the biggest concerns for me is the neurotropism, the ability to affect the nervous system when it comes to SARS-CoV-2. I've always said this virus is tricky and should not be taken lightly. Dr. Nicole Sapphire, medical doctor, senior Fox News medical contributor and best-selling author. You can buy Panic Attack. You can order it online. Doctor, always appreciate it. We'll talk again soon. Thanks for having me, Guy. You bet. The Guy Benson Show continues after this short break. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. 
Back on the Guy Benson Show. So it's primary season in an election year, and Fox News has a couple new polls out. I want to focus on Republican primaries in some key races around the country. In Pennsylvania, Senate seat is going to be open there. Pat Toomey retiring. The Fox News survey finds among GOP voters David McCormick leading Dr. Oz by nine points, 24 to 15 percent. There's other people in the field and a lot of undecided voters there, but a lead for McCormick by nine points in that race. In the meantime, we've got the very crowded, very contested and sometimes, frankly, preposterous Ohio Senate primary in the GOP. Businessman Mike Gibbons is narrowly ahead with 22 percent there. Josh Mandel, the former treasurer of the state, is at 20 percent with J.D. Vance after that at 11 percent. And there are so many people in that primary. It won't really take a huge number to win that primary uh, coming up. And then this one's also interesting in Georgia, home of our great affiliate, Extra. The incumbent governor, Brian Kemp, in the gubernatorial primary there, leading David Perdue, the former senator, by 11 points, 50 percent for Kemp, 39 percent for Perdue. And that has a lot of sort of national attention because of Trump's involvement on behalf of Purdue and against Kemp. But right now, the governor has not just a lead, but is at 50 in that race, at least according to the Fox polling. And that's just the primary. Of course, the general is what really matters in November. And we are all chugging ahead toward that. It should be a big November with a lot on the table and a lot at stake. All right, middle hour of the Guy Benson Show coming up. We will take your phone calls on a very interesting poll. We'll explain. 833-456-1300. That is straight ahead. Don't go anywhere. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. Easing into a brand new hour here on The Guy Benson Show, our second of three, the 4 p.m. Eastern hour between 3 and 6 every weekday. The Guy Benson Show is on the air and also free as a podcast on demand every day. GuyBensonShow.com. GuyBensonShow.com for all of your program-related needs. You can also follow us on social at Guy Benson Show, Twitter and Instagram, or me personally and or me personally. Guy Benson Show or at Guy P. Benson, also for Twitter and for Instagram. Same handle. Fox News alert as we get into this middle hour. The Dow with a strong day, closing up 652 points, ending at 33,285. Coming up in the next hour, General Jack Keane, four-star retired U.S. general. He will be here with the very latest on Ukraine. The Pentagon is currently briefing with John Kirby. We're keeping an eye on that. And we begin, and we're actually going to spend this whole hour on this next topic. And we're going to do an hour on it because I want to spend a good chunk of that hour hearing from you. We're going to take phone calls at 833-456-1300. You can write it down right now, toll free. We'll get to your calls after we sort of set everything up. I'll ask a question. But if you have a pen, you can just jot it down if you want to, commit it to memory. 833-456-1300. I'll mention it again a bit later. There was a poll from Quinnipiac. Quinnipiac University's got their pollster. We cite them uh, from time to time. 
and they were asking the American people about the fight in Ukraine and the war that Russia is waging against the people of Ukraine, the government of Ukraine. And there was stuff about, you know, do you support Joe Biden's approach? Do you support uh, a fight against Russia if they attack a NATO country? They had a lot of questions that were sort of standard. Then they asked a very interesting additional question. Quote, as the world witnesses what is happening to Ukraine, Americans were asked what they would do if they meaning we, were in the same position as Ukrainians right now. If the United States of America were invaded by a foreign power, the question was this. Would you stay and fight the invading enemy, or would you leave the country? Because we're seeing millions of Ukrainians fleeing. Right. Refugees trying to get to Poland and other neighboring countries to get to safety to avoid the humanitarian disaster. I mean, there was an attack on a maternity hospital. There are children dying in the port city in the south. Mariupol. I mean, it's just awful. So you've got children, you've got women, you've got other people leaving the country. Of course, you have many staying and fighting and taking up arms and attacking the Russians. So this hypothetical scenario painted for Americans by Quinnipiac's pollster, they asked a representative sample of the American people, if this were to happen here, what would you do? Would you stay and would you fight or would you leave the country? Now, I have a few thoughts on that. I want to sort of flesh it out a little bit. But first, let me tell you about what the responses were. And I think some of the responses were very interesting, to put it lightly. Overall, these are adults in America. A majority, 55% of Americans said they would stay and fight the invading enemy, 55%, whereas 38% said they would leave the country. Those are the two options. Now, the breakdown on sex is a major one. 70% of men, 7 out of 10 men in the country said, I would stay, I would fight, with less than a quarter saying they would leave, 24%. Women, a majority said they would leave the country, 52%, whereas 40% of American women told Quinnipiac they would stay to fight the invading force. Now, let's look at this through a partisan lens. They broke it down, Republican, Democrat, Independent. So the group most likely to say that they would stay in the USA and fight, fight whoever was invading us, were Republicans. 68% of Republicans say they would stay and fight. 25% said they would leave. Then you have independents. Quite a, sort of like a similar breakdown, not quite as robust in the stay and fight category, but close. 57%, a clear majority. of independents said they would stay, they would fight for America, whereas 36%, a little over one out of three independents, would leave. And we have our Democratic friends. A majority of Democrats said they would leave the country rather than take up arms to defend her. 52% of Democrats say they would leave. 40% say they they would stay. So that that's a 12 point gap, 40 to 52 percent against staying to fight for America. Now, part of that could be 
related to the previous demographic we were just talking about, men versus women. There's a big gender gap in this country. Men are much more Republican. Women are more Democratic. So if you have a lot more women in the Democratic Party, you're going to have more of them saying, I'm going to leave. Because, by the way, there are differences in the desires and choices of men and women and the biology of men and women. And so if most American women say they're going to leave and Democrats skew more heavily female, it would make sense that that would be borne out in the data. That's only part of it, though. I mean, we've seen women doing their part for the war effort in Ukraine, for example. So 68 percent, nearly 70 percent of Republicans say they would stay and fight an invading force if we were invaded in the United States. Almost six out of 10 independents said the same thing, but a majority, 52 percent of Democrats said they would leave. I'd love to know where they would go. That's maybe a follow up question for another day. Two more demographics to look at here. Age and then race. Let's start with race. So by a 22-point margin, white Americans say they would stay and fight, 57 to 35, as opposed to leaving the country, 57, 35. Among black Americans, it's flipped, 38% stay, 59% leave. Hispanic Americans, much closer to the Republican numbers, 61% of Hispanics in this country asked the question, said they would stay in the United States and fight for the United States against this uh, outside force that had invaded us. This is obviously very hypothetical. 61% versus 33% who would leave. So that's uh, basically a two-to-one margin. In fact, Hispanics have the biggest margin to stay and fight of any of the three ethnic groups or racial groups, rather, that were polled. And then on age... Senior citizens, so above 65, it's still a majority who would stay and fight, 52-37. I think that when you're talking about vulnerable people in society, I think the more vulnerable you are or the more likely you are to be caring for vulnerable people like children, the more likely it might make sense to think about leaving. So seniors are saying 52-37, they would stay and fight, but that's a pretty big number who would leave. In the 50 years old to 64 years old range, it's two-thirds say they would stay, 28% would leave. 35 to 49, my age range, it's 57-37, so a 20-point margin to stay and fight. The youngest Americans, the most able-bodied, the military age demographic, 18 to 34, it's the only age group that would leave. A plurality of young Americans would not stay and fight for the country. 48% would leave. 45% would stay. So it's closely divided, but a few more say they would leave than fight. And these would be the most sort of eligible fighters, the most formidable fighters potentially, at least in theory, physically speaking. There's probably a whole rabbit hole we could go down thinking about the ages here and why young Americans are least likely to want to fight for this country in this hypothetical poll. Again, this is anonymous. You're just telling a pollster. Someone invades the United States. Do you fight them or do you leave? I mean, if you are inclined to tell the truth, I mean, you have almost four out of 10 Americans volunteering that they would get out rather than stay and fight, including most young people. 
What has been taught to young people? What has been inculcated within young Americans, within that demographic, that would lead them to that conclusion? I wonder. So, I mean, it's it's a pretty staggering poll. I think it's a very interesting question. I wasn't expecting to see it in this survey. I would note that one of the questions in the poll unrelated to this was if the Russians were to attack a NATO ally, should the U.S. respond militarily to Russia? By the way, that would be our obligation under the treaty. And it was a huge, overwhelming yes from the American people. Seventy nine percent of Americans said yes. We should respond militarily if that were to happen, including 88 percent of Democrats. Now, I don't want to just pick on Democrats here, but I would like to maybe read some interviews with Democrats, 88 percent of whom say, yes, we should fight militarily against Russia over there if they hit a NATO ally. I agree, by the way, that's the treaty. That's the mutual defense pact that we have entered into, and it is solemn and it is serious. And that Article 5 of NATO has been invoked one time ever on behalf of us after 9-11. So if the Russians attack someone over there, I think we'd have an obligation to go and fight the Russians. That hasn't happened. We pray to God that will never happen. 88% of Democrats and 80% of the American people generally say, yes, we should. But only 40% of Democrats say they'd be willing to fight for the country here at home if we were invaded. I just want to know what the calculus is there. Like, yes, let's go fight Russia there under these circumstances. But if a foreign army shows up on our shores, you're going to leave and not fight. I, I, I struggle with that one. I have to confess. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, I kind of want to go around the horn here at the show. Our team, just to get a sense of what they might do. Then I'm going to repeat the phone number, and we're going to get to your phone calls as well on this subject. Absolutely fascinating, fairly provocative, certainly thought-provoking for me, hypothetical poll question from Quinnipiac. Phone number, 833-456-1300. 833-456-1300. We will explore this further and get your take as we continue on The Guy Benson Show. The Guy Benson Show. More next. I'm Guy Benson. It's the Guy Benson Show. We're talking about this poll out this week. If America were invaded by a foreign enemy, would you stay and fight the enemy on behalf of the United States or would you leave the country? The poll showed 55% of Americans said they would stay and fight. 38% would leave. I would add a few other options here, by the way, when we start having this conversation in earnest, if you're going to sort of play this out in your mind. I think you can stay and fight, take up arms, be at the front lines. I think there would also be an option to stay in the United States and help the war effort in other ways, like we've seen some of the people building the bombs and the Molotov cocktails in Ukraine, that sort of thing. You could probably also stay in the United States and not be involved at all in the war effort, just sort of. Be neutral, I guess. And then, of course, you could leave the country. The poll only asked two options. Would you stay and fight or would you leave? I'm adding a few other potential selections there because I think there's different calculations for different people. Are you potentially struggling with a disability? 
Do you have young kids? Right. I don't think there's a, a right answer for every single person. I think overall there's a right answer, by and large, generally speaking. But I'll, I'll hold on to that for now. Keep my powder dry for now. And just to make this a little bit more specific and explicit, right now in our moment in history, I think the only thing we'd be talking about here is China in terms of manpower, a huge army, the People's Liberation Army, designs on global hegemony. Uh, hegemony. I think right now, realistically, the only country that would even possibly in a remote setting, remote possibility, consider something like this right now would be the CCP in China. So if that's what happened, we were in a huge global war with them. Again, this is a very dark scenario. And they decided they were going to come and invade the United States of America. What would you do? My dad is listening. He texted me during the commercial break. He's shocked by this poll. Shocked. He said his vote would be women and children welcome to leave. Single women also welcome to stay and fight. Males under 18 and over 65 could leave. All other males, 16 plus, welcome to stay and fight. He said he would stay and fight. And he's he's astonished that the number of people responding that they would leave the country is as high as it is. 38% according to this poll. So before we get to your phone calls on this question, I just want to quickly talk to the team here. Options again are stay, pick up arms and fight the enemy to defend the homeland. Stay and help the war effort in another way. Stay and do nothing or leave. Leave the country. Quiet, Wyatt, what is your inclination? Well, I am now war, Wyatt. Right. But I would I would definitely stay. Um, I would not flee the country, but I, I don't think I would go on the front lines. I don't know if that's necessarily my expertise, but I think I would help out in other ways like maybe manning the desk at the Fox News channel, you know, being on manning the turrets there. I think that's that would be my skill set that I would be able to uh, give better than being on the front lines. Dan, what would you do? Um, I have a lot of military history in my family, and uh, I always regretted not joining the military. So I, I ha- it's one thing to say, but I, I, I think I would stay and fight. I think that would be my, my decision. All right, Christine, what would you do? First, I would have to get Megan, you know, somewhere safely. And then I think I would come back. Not only would I come back and fight, Guy, I would come back and head down to you, and I would fight with you together because we're no, best no, friends. Thank you. We're, no, we're, we're just not really great under pressure. Over there, and I could just imagine it not going well. Maybe we could put you in the cavalry division. You could get on one of your favorite ponies and charge toward the enemy. But I think, in all seriousness, not to make too much light of it, you have a young daughter. I mean, you would what? Make sure that she was somewhere safe, and then what? Join the literal resistance, not the you know political resistance, the resistance resistance. I, I think in some way I would stay. If I couldn't just, you know, necessarily fight myself, I would do something to help the efforts. Um, maybe I could pass if it out. Meant, like- if it meant making sure that your daughter was safe and the only option to keep her safe was to leave, would you leave? Yes, of course. Okay. Okay. So, I mean, again, I, I, there's no shame in some of the answers that you might give. Now, I, look, if you're – if you're someone who hates this country and you want to leave because you hate it and you're rooting for the enemy, I would say, yes, shame on you. But under this scenario, I didn't come up with it. This was a Quinnipiac poll nationwide. If America were invaded by an enemy, 
what would you do? The phone number here at The Guy Benson Show is 833-456-1300. Toll free. 833-456-1300. I want to hear from you. You can say if you're male or female, your you know, approximate age range, what would you do? Stay and fight? Stay and do something else? Or leave the United States if, let's say, Beijing decided to attack us? Your phone calls straight ahead. 833-456-1300 on The Guy Benson Show. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. 833-456-1300. Your toll-free connection here to the Guy Benson Show. Every phone line is full that we have here. We're packed. But keep calling because we're going to get to these calls here in a moment. If you're just joining us, the topic at hand today is this. Quinnipiac Poll asks Americans if we were invaded... This is a hypothetical situation here, of course, at home. It is not at all hypothetical in Ukraine. We're seeing what's happening in Ukraine. If we were invaded, like Ukraine has been invaded, the question was, would you stay and fight for your country against the invading force, or would you leave the country? And there's a few other options, I would say, on the table as well. What would you do? I've thought a a lot about this in the last few days. I want to hear from you. 833-456-1300. Let's get going and let's start out in California. Kelly, you are up first on The Guy Benson Show. Hi. Hi, Guy. I absolutely love your show. And I wanted to tell you I would absolutely stay, stay, take up arms, and protect my homeland against any invading force. Did you have any second thoughts about that when you first heard this question? Absolutely not. I live in a community here where um, we support America and the flag, and we are very, very strong patriots here in Paso Robles, California. Well, Kelly, I'm glad you're out there. I'm glad you're listening. Thank you for listening, and a strong first call on this question. 833-456-1300. Would you stay and fight? Would you do something else to contribute, maybe? Would you try to stay neutral, or would you leave? Faced with just those top options of staying and fighting and leaving, the poll of Americans says 55% would stay, 38% would leave. What about you, and why? 833-456-1300. Sean is calling from Fort Worth, Texas. Sean, welcome. Hey, Thanks, Guy. I really appreciate it. Love the show. Um, just Thank wanted you. to say I would definitely stay and fight for uh, our country and our flag. I've had every family member that's a male in my family has been in the military except for me. And um, I feel a grave duty to defend this country if anything were to come over here. And I've actually been trying to volunteer to go and fight over there in Ukraine. But unfortunately, I've had no success getting a hold of the embassy as you know, you you would know that the calls and the, the website is just totally flooded. So, yeah. You know, I would do. Wow. I would so so you've been part. you've been actively reaching out, maybe contemplating a way where you could go over to Ukraine to help the Ukrainians. If that's the case, Sean, then this is a no brainer. If, if the danger were here at home, uh, you would obviously be you know, one I, of the first people I, to I sign up. I can't think of an American person that wouldn't want to stay and defend their country as much freedom as they have here. And then they're seeing freedom trying to be stripped away from another country that people, you know, that that love freedom and love Americans. I mean, come on. It's a no brainer, of course. 
Yeah. I mean, four out of 10 Americans, almost 38 percent, apparently disagree uh, based on this poll. Sean, you are in the majority, though, in that poll result down there in Texas. Thank you, Sean. Appreciate it. 833-456-1300. 833-456-1300. Give us your answer, what you would do under this scenario if we were invaded. And then maybe help us understand your thought process. 833-456-1300. Let's go next to Denise down in Florida, Vero Beach. Denise, welcome. Glad you called. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Thank you. I would stay and fight alongside my husband with my two children. We wouldn't go anywhere. How old roughly are your kids? I have a 31 and a 32-year-old. And you're confident the four of you would just be a, a mean, lean fighting force down in there in Florida as a family unit? We would be a family unit. Um, I We have our own guns, and I can't say that we, we would be on the front lines um, because that wouldn't be our expertise, but we would we would defend anyone that came, and we would help wherever help was needed. All right, Denise. Appreciate that phone call. Uh, enjoy the warm weather down there in free Florida. I'm a little jealous. Denise in Florida on The Guy Benson Show, 833-456-1300. Whenever one call is over and we drop the call, that line immediately fills up. So keep trying. 833-456-1300. Let's go out to Washington State, Spokane, Troy. Hello, sir. I would absolutely stay in fight. I would make sure that my uh, my ex-wife and my child and my fiance all got out safely, and I would go wherever the help was most needed. Well, that's uh, very gallant of you, even with your ex. I think there's some people out there who'd say, I'd, I'd make sure my ex went to the front lines. But you would make sure <laughs> people close to you are safe, then you would fight. I do want to ask you, because you mentioned your fiance, you mentioned your ex, you mentioned your child. How old's your kid? Eight years old. Okay, what would be your expectation for, like, women in this case? Or, you know, what would be the youngest? Like, if this is an existential threat to America with a foreign invasion, would it be 18-year-olds or up? What about, you know, 16? I think, you know, at some point in, in Ukraine, they're, they're emptying prisons, you know, of prisoners come help us. What do you think would be the appropriate thing to try to repel an invasion? Well, you know, I, I, I'm, I've always been, you know, just uh, freedom period, you know, and I, I would encourage anyone of able body and, and age to, to stand up and fight for our freedom, as our forefathers did, and and as my grandfather did in World War II. Um, I, you know, I, I wouldn't say that we would need to, I would hope that we wouldn't need to force people to do it. I would hope that they would stand up and do the right thing. All right, Troy, thanks for calling. Thanks for listening. 833-456-1300. Interesting calls. And I love the the insight, the windows into how people are thinking and why they're thinking that way. Let's see. Connecticut, you're up next. Waterbury, it's John calling into the Guy Benson Show. John, what do you think about this? Good afternoon, Guy. Long-time listener, first-time caller. Awesome. I mean, Thank you. One thing, that, one thing that no one's brought up, our citizens are armed, not like anybody else around the world. We're armed. Or maybe some might be illegally, but there are a bunch that are legal. And I think if it came down to defending your property and people that you care about, you would dive in it headfirst and not even think about it. You know, John, I think this is a really important point about the nature of the American people. If you're a foreign government or some foreign military and you're thinking about coming to this country to try to occupy 
this country, you are making, in my view, a huge mistake. We are we are people who jealously guard our liberties and our freedom. I mean, hell, we we show up and make a bit of a ruckus at a school board meeting if we feel like they're doing the wrong thing. If you're invading us to come take over this country on our soil, on our ground, and to your point with the amount of people in this country who aren't just armed but armed to the teeth with a lot of training, not just military and ex-military veterans, law enforcement, just private citizenry, you are in for one hell of a nightmare if you try that here. That's just my little public service announcement for the Chinese, by the way, for the Chinese government, in case they're listening. Uh, Go ahead, John, last word there. Now, like I said, I mean, any American fights to protect their homeland. That's what freedom's all about. Yep. Amen. I like that. John, appreciate it. Thanks for listening. Thanks for calling. 833-456-1300. Let's see. Matt calling from Georgia, our affiliate down there, 106.3 Extra. Matt, glad you're here. I would absolutely stay and fight. And if these cowards that want to leave our country, bye. You have just lost your citizenship and all rights to this country. My son is currently stationed in South Korea. He would absolutely fight. My daughter, my granddaughter, my wife, everybody else in my family would stay and fight. And as far as the ages go, if you're going to stay, Something is going to be done to contribute to those efforts, whether it's stitching clothing, preparing food, whatever it may be. It's going to happen. Yeah, I th- and I think that last point, anybody ever tries to come into this country, you will suffer a horrendous fate. Yep, I, I think that's exactly right. And your last point there was, I think, a really good one. There are ways to contribute and to help and be a patriot that doesn't necessarily involve, you know, learning how to use an AR-15 and going and following some military commander. You can do, and we. this was like an all-in effort in World War II, right? Rosie the Riveter, all of that. I think that's what would be necessary for this uh, insurgency, or a true resistance here at home. If anyone dared to come here and if they were able to succeed on any level getting here, uh, there would be hell to pay because of people like we just heard from Matt. And his son, who's deployed, and by the way, thank him, Matt, please, for his service. Good call. 833-456-1300. The calls are just flowing in. Let me put out the question one more time. We'll take a very short break, and we'll come back and get into as many calls as we can here. If the United States were invaded, if you were in the position that the Ukrainians are right now, not so hypothetical, right? They're not hypothetical at all. Terribly, awfully real. If that were here, would you stay and fight? Would you stay and contribute? Would you leave? A poll recently showed that a majority, but not a huge majority of Americans, said they would stay and fight the enemy. A lot of people say they would leave. What would you do? Think about it. Let us know. 833-456-1300. It's The Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. It's the Guy Benson Show. We're back. Quinnipiac, the pollster, asked the American people, produced this week a new poll. If the U.S. were invaded like Ukraine's been invaded, would you fight? Would you stay here and fight the invading force? Or would you leave the country? Those were the two options that they gave. And the answers were 55 to 38 percent they would stay. 
Every age group would stay and fight except for the youngest Americans, a slight plurality of whom would leave the country. That's what they volunteered to upholster. What would you do? That's our question here. 833-456-1300. Back to the very busy phones, packed lines. Amelia, listening on the Fox app, is in Utah. Amelia, very glad you called. Hey, love your show and your team. Uh, Say, I would stay and support, uh, of course, in any way I could. Uh, Maybe America needs to make a few improvements, but we are still the best that there is. But what's disconcerting and I don't understand is this 38 percent. Where are they going to go? Yeah, I mean, (laughs) just logistically speaking, Canada. I mean, some could maybe get to Canada, but that's a lot of people. That would be, off the top of my head, more than 100 million people. It's like, oh, you're going to head for the exits because we're under siege. I mean, good question. Where are you going to go? Thanks for that call, Amelia. Appreciate it. 833-456-1300. 833-456-1300. Carlo in Pennsylvania. Carlo, what would you do? Well, you could find me in central Pennsylvania. I'm ready. I'm a physician assistant, and uh, I'll be glad to put on a trauma pack and grip a gun for our country to continue the fight for freedom. Oh, so that's actually, so you are in the medical profession. So almost, I mean, look, we would probably need medics. I mean, this is a a very macabre intellectual exercise that we're engaged in here, but we would need medics. And it sounds like you'd be, you'd be signing up to do that as soon as possible. Absolutely. I I think it would be a great opportunity. Um, uh, There was, there'd be nothing I would do uh, to help with this country. Okay. Good call, Carla. Thank you out there. Uh, Thank you for being out there. Glad you're out there. Keep it up. Thank you for listening as well. 833-456-1300 here at the Guy Benson Show. Let's see. Let's head to the Deep South. Alabama, JR, you are up next, sir. How are you doing, Guy? I appreciate you taking my call today. Um, sure. I, I just wanted to say I'm a, I'm a, a two-time vet, a uh, war vet, um, once in Kosovo, Albania in 99 when it kicked off. Uh, I was with 5th Corps Artillery out of Germany, and again in 2003 to to crit iraq with 124 signal out of fort hood texas um well thank you thank you for that here absolutely here's the deal if you don't pick up arms against an invader you're going to become a citizen of that nation i mean if you want to become a citizen of whatever nation is invading us that's up to you but as a as a citizen of this nation you need to fight this nation and you had another caller that said it and I applaud them for this. There's other ways of giving. You know, if you watch these videos of the Ukrainians right now, there's old women who are sewing um, yep. fabric to make camouflage. You know, there's a way to give to your country, whether it's fight or not. You know, and yep, I, I, I also go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no, please, please finish the thought. Well, I also want to say that, you know, demographics aside, I I, I do want to say that. I think the generation is what your percentages are based off of when you look at who would fight and who wouldn't. You know, younger generation, more would leave. But that younger generation didn't grow up in the 70s and 80s with the Cold War. You know, I'm I'm a younger generation. I was born in 79 and 42 years old. I grew up at the very tail end of it. But I had that history, and I still had that media coming at me, and, mm-hmm. and we knew what standing up for the country was about. You know, we had 9-11. Everybody was patriotic. Give it five years. Nobody cares anymore. You know, and that's that's my big problem is people not wanting to fight for what they believe in. And I also think, Jr., your point was a really important one 
because we've done this sort of hypothetically and generically, I think if it were a specific threat from a specific enemy, like let's say it was China, I wonder if the poll results would change. People knowing what it would mean to become basically against your will a subject of Beijing and what that would entail, what that would mean for you, what that would mean for your freedoms and your lifestyle would not be a pretty picture at all from an American perspective. And as you said, do you want to fight for what we have here or do you want to just allow a foreign invader to come over and take over your life? I think if there was an actual face to that opposition and what that would mean for you, maybe the numbers could change. I don't know. Jr. thank you for your service. Thank you for listening. Thank you for that phone call. 833-456-1300. Let's go to Kansas in the heartland. Tim, you're up, sir. Hi, how are you today? Very well, how thank you. How are you today, guy? Good. Hey, uh, Doing well. Yeah, I was very surprised by the, uh, by the outcome of that. Uh, 55%, very low. Um, it's astonishing, really. I... Uh, I served in the military in 81 to 87. I was in the Air Force in a non-combat position. Uh, I was a fireman, and I would do anything to protect my country and my homeland. Um, In uh, in World War II, when Japan invaded the United States, one admiral said, I'm afraid we've awakened a sleeping giant. And another one had said the reason they didn't invade the home or or, uh, lands is the mainland is because there would be a gun behind every blade of grass. And which is correct. So they, they bombed us. We weren't ready. They got out. And then we ended up sacrificing an enormous amount to win that war. But, yeah, I mean, it's like if you want to think about this, you want to even contemplate it, good luck. The American people are not going to stand for it. And it would be a very painful experience, I think, anyone trying to occupy this country. And I can't get to all of these calls, but I see Joe and Christian, Chris, Howard, Teresa, Dave, Tony, Greg, appreciate all of you calling in on this topic. I'll just say this to close out the hour for me. We talk a lot about this being the greatest country in the history of the world, the last great hope for mankind and freedom. In my view, you either believe that or you don't. It's not just words. It's actually meaningful. It means something. And if that's put to the test, you fight for it. That's what I would do. I'm not an expert. I've never even fired a gun. I might be useless with a gun. But I would do everything my country asked of me to fight for this country. Because ultimately, that's what this comes down to. And you have to believe what you say, and I do. I know what our next guest would do. Jack Keen, up next. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. Final hour here on the Guy Benson Show. Wednesday edition. Thank you for tuning in. GuyBensonShow.com. One-stop shop for all of your program needs. GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast on demand every day for free. That's an option. GuyBensonShow.com. And this hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, we actually just heard on our Facebook page from a Finnish listener who I guess likes Long Drink. I think they all do over there. But weighing in on our topic from the last hour, 
Very interesting stuff. But the Finnish long drink is delicious. We recommend it. Check it out. They are expanding. They might be near you now. It's all at thelongdrink.com. You can also order online. Thelongdrink.com. Please drink responsibly. 21 plus only. As we begin our final hour, we have reports of air raid sirens sounding in Kiev, the capital city of Ukraine. We have seen the devastation from strikes that have hit hospitals, children's hospitals, maternity hospital. There are now reports that the U.S. government and intelligence agencies worry that Moscow might be contemplating, Putin might be thinking about using chemical weapons on a raid against Kiev. Joining us now to discuss all of this is General Jack Keane, retired four-star general, chairman of the Institute for the Study of War, and Fox News senior strategic analyst. General, welcome back. Oh, delighted to be here, Guy, as always. I want to ask you first about what's the situation on the ground right now based on all of your intelligence and what you're hearing? Because there is a school of thought that says, you know, this is going actually quite well for the Ukrainians and very badly for the Russians. But there's also fear that the Russians are about to strike back with a vengeance again. And they still have a lot of personnel and, and heavier firepower. Who has the upper hand and what are you watching over the next few days uh, in terms of what is most important in your mind, most interesting to you? Yeah, well, first of all, uh, the Ukrainians have done remarkably well. I mean, we're two weeks into this war, and the Russians have not captured a major city. Um, the Ukrainians are still flying their aircraft and shooting down uh, Russian aircraft using uh, air defense systems, um, integrated air defense systems uh, for our audience. Uh, that means these are more sophisticated, can uh, knock out Russian aircraft at high altitude, and they're tied to a command and control and a radar system. And that forces the Russian airplanes down to lower levels to avoid those. And as a result of that, they're uh, being knocked out by stingers, which have a limited range. A stinger is an air defense shoulder-fired weapon. So it's really quite remarkable that the Russians, largely because they don't have the sophisticated uh, electronic equipment that the United States has to defeat integrated air defense systems, which we would do in the first hours of any battle, so that we would have uh, absolutely unrestricted air superiority. So that's number two. And they've had limited success with cyber warfare. Now, not particularly well known is we have upgun the Ukrainian cyber counter-offensive uh, capabilities over the last couple of years, and um, Cyber Command, which contains the United States' offensive cyber capability. This is a military organization headed by a four-star. He's dual-added. He's also the head of the National Security Agency. They have moved what they call cyber mission teams into Eastern Europe. And they have had some success countering uh, the Russian offensive cyber activity that they've been launching against the Ukrainians. So that is, is quite remarkable. And you can tell that the international uh, media is broadcasting every single day from just about any location they want to broadcast from, with some exceptions. Uh, and the Internet is up, is up and running. And uh, so those are remarkable things that the Russians 
attempted to take uh, Ukraine down, but one-third of their deployed force in two days, and that failed miserably. And they're reorganized now, uh, Guy, uh, to uh, the main effort is Kyiv. They're going to they're attempting to make two approaches from the east and one approach from the west. And they've been working on uh, getting this together for about a, close to a week. And they began some of that today. And frankly, they've not done well. Uh, on the west side, they, they put uh, nine of their battalions into the fight on two axes, and they got stopped by the Ukrainians. And on the east side, where they're coming a much longer distance, uh, the Ukrainians have interdicted their columns and slowed them down rather considerably so that they're more on defense than on than on offense. And this this is their main effort. They're going after Kyiv, and, and certainly they want to encircle it, hammer it with artillery and, and bombs, solicit a surrender, and if not, then move into uh, Kyiv itself. The, um, the locals have had uh, two weeks to prepare for this. So uh, urban warfare, as we in the military know, favors the defense because of the protection that the buildings afford the defendants. So what about this concern about, let's say they get there, and it, it sounds like they're struggling, which is, I mean, what you're saying is extremely... Really encouraging right. news, and the Ukrainians deserve so much credit. If they somehow do get there, because they still have you know a lot of resources here, what do you make of some of the intelligence emerging today and warning from the White House itself about a concern, at least, that the Russians are getting desperate enough to maybe use chemical weapons? Well, they're probably picking up some intelligence on that. I mean, we've got, I think, some pretty good intel uh, because uh, not only have we always had good intel on the Russians uh, as a result of multiple means, certainly, um, but something like that, uh, we're watching, I, I would imagine, the deployment of the kinds of organizations that would do that. We can see that from satellites, but we're also listening to their tactical and operational nets, so we could pick it up that way as well. That, listen, the Russians we know um, who, who bailed uh, – Basar al-Assad out in 2014 and 2015 when they went in there and provided air power support for him. Uh, while the Russians were there, Basar al-Assad used chemical weapons on his own people. He could never have done that without an okay from the Russians. So, yes, uh, the Russian way of war is very different than the United States, for sure. I mean, we operate on a values-based democratic system in concert with the uh, international war guidelines, and we certainly would not, those weapons are prohibited from use, and we wouldn't use them. But the Russians, I don't think, would hesitate if if they needed it, if they if they had no other choice, uh, then yes. And, and so our audience understands, because the, so, there is a fundamental difference in the application of military force between the Russians and the United States and 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 our democratic allies, and that is we make war certainly on the opponent's military, and we take extraordinary precautions uh, to avoid civilian casualties, which are not completely avoidable. And at times we make mistakes, and at times we have errant missiles that kill people. We don't kill people intentionally. 
And if any one of our soldiers ever does, and we've had soldiers do that, then we put them into a court-martial system and likely they go into jail as a result of it. The Russians, they make war on, the, on, the, on their adversary's military, but as a matter of doctrine, they make war on the opponent's people. Uh, in other words, they're prepared to slaughter them to break their will and force capitulation. And yeah, it's an and, important tenet of what they do. And that's the fear here. And, and I know you have that concern. I heard it in your voice that they surround Kiev, a city of almost 3 million. I doubt if there's 3 million still there, but there's likely 2 million at least. And that it could be a, a devastating situation for the people who are there. Yeah, it's just it's one of the things certainly that is very, very worrisome. I also want to ask you about this, General. It's I'm really struggling with this. We had heard and we've been covering it back and forth. The EU was going to provide fighter jets to the Ukrainians, and then that deal fell through, so never mind. And then the U.S., our government, our Secretary of State said, okay, we're going to green light it if the the European Union or their member countries want to do that. We're going to give it the green light. Then the Poles stood up to the plate and said, okay, we're going to send MiGs, fighter jets, to the Ukrainians, we want to do it through the uh, U.S. Air Force Base in Germany. The Ukrainians can come pick up the uh, pick up the planes, and we said this is a great development. Then late yesterday, the administration said, "Well, we didn't know that was coming. We have concerns. So we're not really sure that that's workable." And then today, they said it's not workable. It's too risky. We're rejecting it. I mean, I don't know exactly what the the politics playing out here entail. I don't know what some of the logistical concerns are, or you know, are they worried about? being seen as escalating by the Russians. I don't really have an insight into that. Maybe you have a window into it. But surely, if there is an allied country like Poland offering to give extremely important uh, fighter jets to the Ukrainians who still have the ability to fly them and, and, and fight the Russians, shouldn't we be doing everything in the West, in our power, to make that happen and facilitate it one way or another. If it can't happen in Germany, then, you know, somewhere else. I just – it's sort of with time of the essence and the clock ticking and the description that you just gave us about what the Russians might be attempting in Kiev, uh, it just seems it seems unfathomable to me that we have this offer from the Polish military that has not already been executed and seems to be waylaid right now in this geopolitical uh, sort of moment where where – they're snagged. Yeah, I mean, I think I don't know all the facts, and, and no one does because, you know, we're just not being told. But some, just thinking through it a little bit, it was the Poles' idea. It was endorsed by Secretary Blinken two days ago after some discussion. I believe this happened. Likely a high government official from Russia called the foreign minister or the defense minister uh, in Poland and told them, if you provide those fighter jets, we're going to look at that as an act of war and you'll suffer the consequences. I think that likely spooked them. And they came up with an idea, okay, we'll still give the jets up, but we'll give them to the Americans, much more powerful country than we are, 
and they can deal with this better than we can and let them uh, get the jets in the hands of the uh, Ukraines. I don't know that for a fact, but I'm speculating. It seems very plausible to yeah, me why, plausible. The sudden, why the sudden turnaround. And then uh, what, what we did, and, but we displayed— and Why would we endorse here. it and then not do it? Yeah, because we believe that now we have to get the jets from our NATO base, U.S. NATO base— to Ukraine, and that raises the threat of escalation in, in, in our minds. Now, and this is a pattern of behavior that I have found disturbing right from the outset, and here's why. The Russians showed up on the Ukraine border in March. We had a shipment of weapons from the Trump administration that had been already scheduled to arrive around that time, March, April. 70,000 on the border, 2021, admittedly only 90 days into the Biden administration, as opposed to letting that shipment go for all the obvious reasons, because the Ukrainians now for sure need help. There actually is a threat there. We delayed that until August. And then when they showed up with 150,000 in the fall on the Ukraine's border, after the debacle in Afghanistan, I believe was a catalyst for it, we delayed the fall shipment. Yeah, it seems like we're of sort of the ones worried constantly about escalations or seeming escalatory, but the Russians are responsible for every escalation. And we see how that's going. I mean, these are Polish planes that need to be in Ukrainian hands, and they're stuck in this purgatory right now. And the U.S. needs to do something better than just saying no. That's my view for now as we watch this unfold. General Jack Keane on The Guy Benson Show. General, always appreciate it. Thank you. Happy hour on The Guy Benson Show. Did you hear this soundbite? It's from the president. He was in Texas yesterday for a veterans-related event. Bipartisan, a couple members of Congress were there. And he was referring to three of the congressmen that were at the event. And Uncle Joe said this, cut 19. The three congressmen you have here, two of them look like they could, they really could and did play ball, and the other one looks like he could bomb you. Two of them look like they could and did play ball and the other one looks like he could bomb you okay so i looked at the images from the event and it's two relatively big african-american democrat members of congress who were there and then a i believe white republican congressman although some people were suggesting maybe he looks a little bit middle eastern is that what President Biden was talking about like he would bomb me. What is he talking about? So I did a little bit of digging just to look into the bios of these three congressmen. The one Republican was a fighter pilot. So it would make sense for Biden within a context with some explanation to say he looks like a guy who could bomb you if you're our enemy. Maybe that's what he meant. That is likely what he meant. But out of context, it's just a strange thing to say that someone looks like they could bomb you. Then as for the two congressmen on the other side of the aisle, one of them did play professional football. The other one is from Texas. I was looking at his bio. Does not appear to have played sports at any high level. He was a sports writer earlier in his career. 
And I guess the issue here again is Biden saying these people look like they blank. So people say, well, do those two look like they would play football or basketball or some sport because they're big black guys? And does the other guy not quite sure what his ethnicity is? What's the bombing comment about? I think it's just Joe knowing ahead of time and being briefed. One of these guys played pro football. One of these guys was a fighter pilot, and he took that information in. It got all mixed and jumbled up in the Joe Biden brain and then spit back out in that very odd statement, which was not phrased well. I can see how it was baffling to people. Biden doesn't help himself by going off script like that. But I don't think this was an example of him being like reflexively racist or making judgments based on people's appearance alone. I'm trying to be charitable in a way that often the other side is not to conservatives, but golden rule do unto others. And I think this was just the old synapses misfiring a bit for Joe, which we know happens from time to time. Again, to put it charitably. The Guy Benson Show Happy Hour continues. Jason Rance is here with a wild story out of the Pacific Northwest. Yes, woke tales coming up. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. As we continue on the Guy Benson Show... Glad to have you here. GuyBensonShow.com, podcast free every day. You know what? It's been a while, but it's time once again for Woke Tales. Woke Tales. And here with us to help in this department today is Jason Rance, host of the Jason Rance Show on KTTH, 770 AM and 94.5 FM in Seattle, Tacoma, our great affiliate out there. He's also a regular on Fox News. You see him all the time. Jason, great to have you back here. Thank you so much for having me. I feel like we could probably do this bit every single day, every single hour. We could. We 100% could. It's been a little heavy with the war recently, so we've been holding off. But sometimes you just have to play the hits. And unfortunately, this is the type of thing that isn't just entertaining. I think it's actually serious because it's a cultural phenomenon. And I have talked before on and off the air with you about one of the tactics in fighting the wokes is to ridicule them and to highlight what they're doing. And you sent me this story in a DM the other day, and it goes to the issue of blackface. It goes to the issue of hypocrisy and double standards. It goes to the issue of bullying Explain what has happened to an award-winning HIV researcher in Washington state. Yeah, her name is Dr. Julie Overbaugh, and up until recently, she was a senior vice president over at the Fred Hutchison Cancer Research Center, as well as a faculty member over at the University of Washington and their medical center. But she did something horrible 13 years ago. She attended a party, a Halloween party that was themed around the Michael Jackson album Thriller, and she dared to dress up as Michael Jackson. And as a result, 13 years later, she is being called out for blackface, which I don't think this would qualify to a reasonable person as an example of blackface, but claiming that this 
Was that because of how Michael Jackson looked? Well, I mean, you could go into that, but I would say most people, when you say blackface, I think they're thinking of caricatures. They're thinking of uh, uh, instances that are purposefully over the top, and you think about minstrel shows, for example. This was not that. This was not intended to be offensive at all. It wasn't offensive back in 2009. It's not offensive in 2022, except to the woke scolds who go out of their way to find things like this, because apparently the senior leadership over at both Fred Hutchison as well as the UW, they got one email with the photo anonymously submitted going after her for this event, and they decided to do an investigation. They called it out as a racist costume. They claimed that people on the UW campus were not merely offended, but they were harmed, harmed. by the photo. Oh, yeah. Yep, always they were harmed. harmed. Of course, it, it's a, the costume actually made their lives miserable, and of course, no one actually probably even heard of what had happened or seen the photo until the all staff email went out or the community wide email went out from the UW, not only saying what happened but also naming this doctor specifically. And we now know that she stepped down from her roles. It sounds like she was forced out of her role over at Fred Hutch, as well as taking a, a sort of a step back from her role as a faculty member, so she can go through some re-education, uh, as it were. I feel like they disseminated the harm by sharing the photo with a bunch of people who would never see it for any other reason. That's another weird part of this to me. Do you know this person? How would you describe her politics? Is this a, a right-winger? I am told that she's very far to the left, that she's very much a liberal. Now, I didn't get to speak to her in great depth. She sent me an email after I had uh, reached out to just be- get a better understanding of what had happened. And she-, she had said, quote, I did not know the association of this with blackface at the time in, 20- in 2009, but understand the offense that is associated with this now. I've apologized both publicly and privately. Beyond that, I'm told by folks who do say they know her that she is known as being pretty liberal. And again, this is someone who has spent her career trying to find a cure for HIV. She does a lot of travel specifically to Kenya for her research, where she apparently works not just with locals, but has decided to sort of take them on to help them out in their own careers, the researchers there. So this is not someone who is... What an awful person. Yeah, this is not some MAGA hat wearing person. This is someone pretty far to the left. And when I first found that out, you know, part of me, if I'm being totally honest with you, I said, you know what? She's probably playing into this. She probably played a role into creating this environment where we pretend things like this are offensive. Maybe I shouldn't feel so bad. But I don't know. When I got the email from her, I was like, you know what? This is a. I don't know why I felt this way, but it felt like she was a broken woman who is now just succumbing to the mob, and she doesn't deserve this. No one deserves this. Not for something. You know, this actually reminds me, Jason. I've got a buddy who's very left. He's he is not a moderate Democrat. He's a liberal progressive. But he is increasingly afraid of his own colleagues and friends on the left because of exactly this sort of thing. There was a whole episode over a Halloween costume here in Washington, D.C. that became a huge Washington Post story and someone lost their job. And it was something that had happened years prior. And people had documented this crime against this person, filed it away and just decided on some sort of whim or at a strategic moment to deploy this weapon to try to hurt them and sort of snitched to the right people and turned it into what mm-hmm. eventually amounted to a national controversy about a Halloween costume at an adult party years ago. And this is a similar thing. Someone has hung on to this photo for a moment to hurt this person. 
And it's that sort of snitch culture and cancel culture and seek and destroy type thing through sort of the the woke rules that are ever changing and capricious with no grace and no perspective, no context allowed. That, I think, has some people, especially on the left side of the spectrum, on edge because they're looking around at their alleged friends wondering, are they creating some sort of dossier potentially to weaponize against me at some point in the future? It's, It's actually a very creepy thing. And, Jason, when you sent me the story, you also made the point And I know you wrote this up as well. Think about the world leaders or Mm -hmm. the major powerful politicians who have acknowledged wearing blackface in their lives who didn't really suffer consequences. I know my friend Megyn Kelly got fired from NBC just for talking about blackface and how it was not as offensive in the 70s and 80s. That was a fireable offense, even though NBC shows in the recent past had actually depicted blackface, it's very hard to determine what the rules are here, it would seem. Well, because there are no rules. The, the, your point of this being weaponized is really what this is about. No one is offended by anything when it comes to Megan Kelly's Halloween costume or even uh, Joy Behar's uh, blackface. No, no one is truly offended. They just pretend to be in instances where they want to make a political point. So when Ralph Northam ends up getting caught, when Justin Trudeau gets caught in, you know, quote-unquote offensive attire or offensive costumes by contemporary standards, they get a pass because there are political implications of going after them. But when you're talking about someone else, the lowly person, you go ahead and lean into it when you can. Now, I don't know in this case, uh, you know, if Julie Overbaugh had any, you know, controversial moves within her employment there that people wanted to, to go after her, but when you've right. got What's one the internal person politics? Who, yeah, but there's a this was this was yeah this was deployed specifically for some reason it's gross look my position is if you're a white person don't wear blackface even if it's in a context of a party or anything at this point it's like don't go there but also this is madness and this was 13 years ago someone sat on this for more than a dozen years and then dropped it and why would we want to live in a society that operates that way that's the latest edition of woke tales via Jason Rance of KTTH out in SeaTac country. Jason, always appreciate it. Talk to you soon. Talk to you soon. Thanks for having me. Home stretch coming up next. A sweet end to the program today. Stand by. Fresh conservative talk. Kai Benson Show. Home stretch on the Guy Benson Show. It is Wednesday. Glad that you've been here with us for the entirety of the program, I hope, so far. Almost there. And if you've missed any of the show, of course, there's a podcast. It's on demand. It is free every day. GuyBensonShow.com. Well, I saw this headline flash across last night, and I immediately actually sent a news item about it to my buddy Dan Duva. Best friend from home, professional sports broadcaster. He's the voice of the Golden Knights out in Vegas in the National Hockey League. He and I did sports casting together for years. And if Dan has one weakness, one might argue that he has more than one weakness. I would not really expand on that point at all because he often listens. But one of his weaknesses, he would admit fully, is baked goods. And I remember one year for Lent, people were giving things up and – I'm Protestant, so that's not really something that we do. But he's Catholic, so he's giving something up for Lent. 
And rather than giving up the broad category of baked goods, he gave up a very specific form of baked good from a specific company. He gave up chocolate chip Entenmann's cookies. It's a very narrowly constructed sacrifice, if you will. And who am I to judge? I didn't give up anything. But that was his announcement. I remember teasing him about it at the time. But he was and is a big Entenmann's guy. And he gets to know local bakeries. He's like, oh, when you're here, you have to go there. He's one of those. And he'll show up at your house with a box of something, and it's always delicious. Although he knows I'm much less of a sweet baked goods person in general than he is, and probably less than average, I would say. But he was a big Entenmann's guy to the point that, in his mind, giving up one of their products was something that he had to really make an effort and a show of doing uh, based on the season of sacrifice at Lent. So that being said, the news item, the clipping that I sent him was Charles Entenmann, who helped franchise his Long Island family's bakery, passed away at the age of 92. And so the Internet was paying tribute to Charles Entenmann and Entenmann's generally with an array of options from the Entenmann's catalog, if you will, saying, which of these is your favorite? And they had like crumb cake type stuff, like coffee cake. They had donuts. They had the aforementioned chocolate chip cookies. I think as soon as this segment began, if Dan was listening, he usually listens on the podcast, and he heard a mention of him, I think he knew exactly where this was going. There was no way we weren't going to do an Entenmann segment here to end the program, which I will point out makes this a very high-calorie segment for the week because we did Jenny's ice cream on Monday with actual taste testing, actual ingested calories. We're just talking today. There were no cookies. I didn't send Wyatt out to a local grocery store to get an array of Entenmann's products to bring in here, although we could have crunched into the microphone and everything. I'm just not a big fan of baked goods, especially on a national chain like Entenmann's. Nothing against them. I'm doing the creepy Biden whisper thing because I don't want to offend anyone. I'm not saying Entenmann's is bad. It's just not my thing. So when I've looked at these online graphics like, oh, pick your favorite. I don't really know because I don't really eat that stuff ever. But the team has. And Wyatt, through the glass here in the studios, almost glaring at me, I would say. War Wyatt has strong thoughts. He thinks that I'm way off here. You're an Entenmann's person. Do you dunk Entenmann's products into your Rook coffee, Wyatt? No, I, I don't do that guy. But I do have... A liking of the donuts. It's kind of like a memory thing with my grandparents. Whenever we went to Disney World and stayed with them, there's always a gift shop or the, the resort hotel store, and they always had Entenmann's. And so we would always have the variety pack of the plain powdered chocolate and crumb donuts. Is the chocolate one where it's like a just a normal sort of vanilla donut, if you will, in the middle of it with an outside, slightly yes. harder chocolate covering? Yes, and it okay. tastes really fake and really bad, but it's like one of those things you got to have. And so we would always get it, and that was always like the dessert Like thing. fake and bad in a good way? Yes. yes. Okay. All right. I, I always liked the, the crumb one, and I would always take off the little crumbs on top because I kind of you could just pick them off. I'm pretty sure that we had at church growing up. They would have like in between services or in between the service and Sunday school, like a coffee 
hour or like a, a coffee period of time where they would have coffee, decaf, tea, and then I'm pretty sure those donuts. I think those were a staple. Occasionally they would have the Dunkin' Donuts munchkins, the donut holes. I like the chocolate ones of those. If I had to pick one, it would be that. But that's not Entenmann's, so I'm getting off topic. Getting back to Entenmann's here in honor of the late, great Charles. Dan, you're also an Entenmann's Donuts guy, right? Yes, I do actually love those chocolate donuts that Wyatt was talking about. We always had them at my grandmother's house, and we put them in the fridge. So when you take them out, they're kind of like crunchy and cold, and then you put them in milk. It was absolutely delicious. I loved it. So there's a grandparent theme here so far. And I'm also a believer of certain foods being better when they are either like chilled or warmed up in a way that you're not expecting. So I've said before, I'll say again, I'm a peanut M&M's guy. It's a weakness. When it comes to sweets, that's a weakness. And we put them in the fridge, not the freezer, but the fridge, because room temperature peanut M&M's, good, quite good. Chilled M&M's, not frozen, Tremendous. Many people are saying delicious. So true. Christine, Entenmann's, yay or nay? Oh, 100% yay. So much so that back in 2011, when I was getting married, I wrote to Entenmann's asking them if they would make a special wedding cake for me with the marshmallow <laughs> devils. Wait, do you like, like handwrite? a letter and mail it as an adult to Entenmann's? Just like, to whom it may concern? Or was it addressed to our recently departed Charles? I didn't, I don't think I necessarily wrote to him, and I did not write a handwritten letter. I probably emailed, but I remember this being like a big deal for me because I don't know if any of you had the marshmallow devil's food iced cake. It is the greatest thing you will ever eat. It is mm. so unbelievably good. And I really, I, I often brought that, you know, I would I would call a friend and say, would you like to have cake and coffee? I'd bring over the uh, Entenmann's, and then they laugh that at me. That was your go-to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because you, you just wanted to eat it, and you were not going to do it alone, so that was your excuse. Mm-hmm. So you wrote them asking mm-hmm. for, like, a special custom wedding cake, an Entenmann's wedding cake. Yes. And did you get it? No. No, I didn't even get an answer. Back. That, that same week, I also wrote to Phil Collins asking if he would play at my well, wedding. Hold on. Hold the phone. First of all, I'm just going to note here that... Your nickname is Cookie, and you have a thing for Entenmann's. So there's a little bit of synergy going on there. And now you wrote to Entenmann's and to Phil Collins asking for favors for your wedding. Did Phil Collins at least show up? No. No, he didn't even write me back. Nothing. Wow. Ghosted. And yet you remain so devoted to him. I mean, I understand he was busy, so... Do you think there's a chance that he read the note, got a sense maybe in his gut that you were, eh, you know, a little off and decided rather than responding, he would just give you, let's call it an invisible touch? What do you mean off? What do you mean I'm off? What does that mean? I am simply saying it's something that he may have hypothetically gleaned. I'm not saying it's something that I am asserting about you per se. Just many people are saying. That's that's all I'm no, saying. Who 
I'm Who? reporting. I'm reporting. I report. You decide. I'm not going to name names. Christine, you can stew on that and maybe consider who the many people might be. But that's uh, for you on your own time because we're out of time. Plus, this is not a roast of Christine. This is a tribute to Charles Entman. As we wrap up today's edition of The Guy Benson Show, back here tomorrow, same place, same time. Thank you for listening. Have a great night. Pull up a chair and join me, Rachel Campos Duffy. And me, former U.S. Congressman Sean Duffy, as we share our perspective on the discussions happening at kitchen tables across America. Download from the kitchen table, the Duffy's at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.